Chapter One of The Missing Bride by E. D. E. N. Southworth. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Goldfish. The Missing Bride by E. D. E. N. Southworth. Chapter One Luck Enough. Deep in the primeval forest of St. Mary's, lying between the Patuxent and Wicomico rivers, stands the ancient manor house of Luckenough. The traditions of the neighbourhood assert the origin of the manor and its quaint, happy and not unmusical name to have been briefly this. That the founder of Luckenough was Alexander Kaluga, a Polish soldier of fortune, sometime in the service of Cecilius Calvert, Baron of Baltimore, first lord proprietary of maryland this man had previous to his final emigration to the new world passed through a life of the most wonderful vicissitudes wonderful even for those days of romance and adventure it was said that he was born in one quarter of the globe educated in another initiated into warfare in the third and buried in the fourth in his boyhood he was the friend and pupil of guy fawkes he engaged in the gunpowder plot, and after witnessing the terrible fate of his master, he escaped to Spanish America, where he led for years a sort of buccaneer life. He afterwards returned to Europe, and then followed years of military service wherever his hireling sword was needed. But the soldier of fortune was ill-paid by his mistress. His misfortunes were as proverbial as his bravery, or as his energetic complaints of ill-luck could make them. He had drawn his sword in almost every quarrel of his time, on every battlefield in Europe, to find himself at the end of his military career no richer than he was at its beginning, save in wounds and scars, honour and glory, and a wife and son. It was at this point of his life that he met with Leonard Calvert, and embarked with him for Maryland, where he afterwards received from the Lord Proprietary the grant of the manor aforesaid. It is stated that when the old soldier went with some companions to take a look at his new possessions, he was so pleased with the beauty, grandeur, richness and promise of the place, that a glad smile broke over his dark, storm-beaten, battle-scarred face, and he remained still smiling as in delighted visions, until one of his friends spoke and said, "'Well, comrade, is this luck enough?' "'Ya, yeah, mein friend,' answered the new lord of the manor in his broken English, cordially grasping the hand of his companion. Dish ish lock enough. Different constructions have been put upon this simple answer. First, that luck enough was the original Indian name of the tract. Secondly, that Alexander Kaluga christened his manor in honour of Lukinov, the native village of his wife, the heroic Marie Zelensky, the companion of all his campaigns and voyages, and the first lady of his manor. Thirdly, that the grateful and happy soldier had only meant to express his perfect satisfaction with his fortune, and to say, Yes, this is luck enough, luck enough to repay me for all the past. Be it as it may, from time immemorial the place has been luck enough. The owner in 1814 was Commodore Nicholas War, who inherited the property in right of his mother, the only child and heiress of Peter Kaluga. This man had the constitution and character, not of his mother's, but of his father's family. A hardy, rigorous, energetic Montgomery race, 
full of fire, spirit, and enterprise. At the age of twelve, Nicholas lost his father. At fifteen, he began to weary of the tedium of Luckenough, varied only by the restraint of the academy during term, and at sixteen he rebelled against the rule of his indolent, lymphatic mamma, broke through the reins of domestic government, escaped to Baltimore, and shipped as a cabin boy in a merchantman. Nicholas War went through many adventures, served on board merchantmen, privateers, and haply pirates, too, sailed in every part of the known world, and led a wild, reckless, and sinful life, until the breaking out of the Revolutionary War, when he took service with Paul Jones, the American sea-king, and turned the brighter part of his character up to the light. He performed miracles of valour, achieved for himself a name and post-captain's rank in the infant navy, and finally was permitted to retire with a bullet lodged under his shoulder-blade, a piece of silver trepanned in the top of his skull, a deep sword cut across his face from the right temple over his nose to the left cheek, and with the honorary title of Commodore. He was a perfect beauty about this time, no doubt, but that did not prevent him from receiving the hand of his cousin Henrietta Caluga, who had waited for him many a weary year. No children blessed his late marriage, and, as year after year passed, until himself and his wife were well stricken in years, people who never lost interest in the great estate began to wonder which among his tribe of impoverished relations Nicholas War would bequeath the manor of Luckenough. His choice fell at length upon his orphan grandniece, the beautiful Edith Lance, whom he took from the Catholic Orphan Asylum, where she had found refuge since the death of her parents, and placed in one of the best convent schools in the South. At the age of seventeen, Edith was brought home from school and established at Luckenough as the adopted daughter and acknowledged heiress of her uncle. Delicate, dreamy and retiring, and tinged with a certain pensiveness, the effect of too much early sorrow and seclusion upon a very sensitive temperament, Edith better loved the solitude of the grand old forest of St. Mary's, or the loneliness of her own shaded rooms at Luckenough, than any society the humdrum neighbourhood could offer her and when at the call of social duty she did go into company, she exercised a refining and subduing influence, involuntary as it was potent. Yet in that lovely, fragile form, in that dreaming, poetical soul, lay undeveloped a latent power of heroism soon to be aroused into action. Darling of all hearts and eyes, Edith had been at home a year when the War of 1812 broke out. Maryland, as usual, contributed her large proportion of volunteers to the defence of the country. All men capable of bearing arms rapidly mustered into companies, and hastened to put themselves at the disposal of the government. The lower counties of Maryland were left comparatively unprotected. Old men, women, children and negroes were all that remained in charge of the farms and plantations. Yet remote from the scenes of conflict, and hitherto undisturbed by the convulsions of the great world, they reposed in fancied safety, and never thought of such unprecedented misfortunes as the evils of the war penetrating to their quiet homes. But their rest of security was broken by a tremendous shock. The British fleet, under Admiral Sir A. Colburn, suddenly entered the Chesapeake, and the quiet, lonely shores of the bay became the scene of a warfare scarcely paralleled in atrocity in ancient or modern times. If among the marauding band of licensed pirates and assassins there was one name more dreaded, more loathed and accursed than the rest, 
it was that of the brutal and ferocious Thorg, the frequent leader of foraging parties, the unsparing destroyer of womanhood, infancy, and age, the jackal and purveyor of Admiral Coburn. If anywhere there was a beautiful woman unprotected, or a rich plantation-house ill-defended, this jackal was sure to scent out the game for his master, the lion, and many were the comely maidens and youthful wives seized and carried off by this monster. The Patuxent and the Wicomico, with their coasts between them, offered no strong temptation to a rapacious foe, and the inhabitants reposed in the fancied security of their isolation and unimportance. The business of life went on, faintly and sorrowfully to be sure, but still went on. The village shops at B and C were kept open, though tended chiefly by women and boys. The academicians at the little college pursued their studies, or played at forming juvenile military companies. The farms and plantations were cultivated chiefly under the direction of ladies whose husbands, sons, and brothers were absent with the army. No one thought of danger to St. Mary's. Most terrible was the awakening from this dream of safety, when, on the morning of the 17th of August, the division under the command of Admiral Coburn, the most dreaded and abhorred of all, was seen to enter the mouth of the Patuxent, in full sail for Benedict. Nearly all the able-bodied men were absent with the army at the time, when the combined military and naval forces, Tinder, Admiral Coburn and General Ross, landed in that place. None remained to guard the homes but aged men, women, infants and negroes. A universal panic seized the neighbourhood, and nothing occurred to the defenceless people but instant flight. Females and children were hastily put into carriages, the most valuable items of plate or money hastily packed up, negroes mustered, and the whole caravan put upon a hurried march for Prince George's, Montgomery, or other upper counties of the state. With very few exceptions, the farms and plantations were evacuated and left to the mercy of the invaders. At sunrise, all was noise, bustle, and confusion at Luckenough. The lawn was filled with baggage-wagons, horses, mules, cows, oxen, sheep, swine, baskets of poultry, barrels of provisions, boxes of property, and men and maid-servants hurrying wildly about among them, carrying trunks and parcels, loading carts, tackling harness, marshalling cattle, and making other preparations for a rapid retreat toward Commodore War's patrimonial estate in Montgomery County. Edith was placed upon her pony and attended by her old maid Jenny and her old groom Oliver. Commodore and Mrs. War entered the family carriage, which they pretty well filled up. Mrs. War's woman sat upon the box behind and the Commodore's man drove the coach. And the whole family party set forward on their journey. They went in advance of the caravan, so as not to be hindered and inconvenienced by its slow and cumbrous movements. A ride of three miles through the old forest brought them to the open, hilly country. Here the road forked, and here the family were to separate. It had been arranged that as Edith was too delicate to bear the forced march of days and nights continuance before they could reach Montgomery, she should proceed to Hay Hill, a plantation near the line of Charles County, owned by Colonel Fairley, whose young daughter Fanny, recently made a bride, had been the schoolmate of Edith. Here at the fork the party halted to take leave. Commodore War called his niece to ride up to the carriage window and gave her many messages for Colonel Fairley. For Fanny and for Fanny's young bridegroom, 
and many charges to be careful and prudent, and not to ride out unattended, etc. And then he called up the two old negroes, and charged them to see their young mistress safely at Hay Hill, and then to return to Luckenough, and take care of the house and such things as were felt behind in case the British should not visit it, and to shut up the house after them, in case they should come and rob it and leave it standing. Two wretched old negroes would be in little personal danger from the soldiers. So argued Commodore War, as he took leave of them and gave orders for the carriage to move up on the main branch of the road, leading north toward Prince George's and Montgomery. But so argued not the poor old negroes as they followed Edith up the west branch of the road that led to Charles County. This pleasant road ran along the side of a purling brook under the shadow of the great trees that skirted the forest, and Edith ambled leisurely along, low humming to herself some pretty song, or listening to the merry carols of the birds, or noticing the speckled fish that gambled through the dark, glimmering stream, or reverting to the subject of her last reading. But beneath all this childish play of fancy, one grave, sorrowful thought lay heavy upon Edith's tender heart. It was the thought of poor old Luckenough, deserted at its utmost need to the ravages of the foe. Then came the question, if it were not possible in case of the house being attacked to save it, even for her to save it. While these things were brewing in Edith's mind, she rode slowly and more slowly, until at length her pony stopped. Then she noticed for the first time the heavy downcast looks of her attendants. "'What is the matter?' she asked. "'Oh, Miss Edith, don't ask me, honey, don't. Ain't we dem got to go back to the house and stay there by our two selves after we see you safe?' said Jenny, crying. "'No. What? You two alone?' exclaimed Edith, looking from one to the other. "'Yes, Miss Edith. Deed we has, child. But you needn't look so astonished and mazed. You can't help of it, child. And if the British do come there and burn the house, and he weed them into the fire just out of wanton, it'll only be two old, unvaluable niggers burned up. All must know that well enough. That's the reason he whisks we. But for what purpose have you to return? asked Edith, wondering. Oh, to feed the cattle and the poultry, and take care of the things that's left behind, sobbed Jenny, now completely broken down by her terrors. I know, I just does how them white niggers are come bonus, set the house afire, and he weed them two poor old innocents into the flames out in pure devilish wanton. Edith passed her slender fingers through her curls, stringing them out as was her way when absent in thought. She was turning the whole matter over in her mind. She might possibly save the mansion, though these two old people were not likely to be able to do so. On the contrary, their ludicrous terrors would tend to stimulate the wanton cruelty of the marauders to destroy them with the house. Edith suddenly took her resolution and turned her horse's head, directing her attendants to follow. "'But where are you going to, Miss Edith?' asked her groom Oliver, now speaking for the first time. Back to Luckenough. What for, Miss Edith, for goodness sake? Back to Luckenough to guard the dear old house and take care of you two. But, oh, Miss Edie, Miss Edie, for masters in heaven's sake, what'll come of you? What the master in heaven wills. Lord, Lord, Miss Edie, old master'll kill we them. What'll old master say? What'll everybody say to a young gal a doing it? 
anything like that, da? Oh dear, dear, what will everybody say? They will say, said Edith, if I meet the enemy and save the house, they will say that Edith Lance is a heroine, and her name will probably be preserved in the memory of the neighbourhood. But if I fail and lose my life, they will say that Edith was a cracked-brained girl who deserved her fate, and that they had always predicted she would come to a bad end. Better go on to Hay Hill, Miss Edie. Deed for master, better go to Hay Hill. No, said the young girl, my resolution is taken. We will return to Luckenough. The arguments of the old negroes waxed fainter and fewer. They felt a vague but potent confidence in Edith and her abilities, and a sense of protection in her presence, from which they were loath to part. The sun was high when they entered the forest shades again. See, said Edith to her companions, everything is so fresh and beautiful and joyous here. I cannot even imagine danger. Edith, on reaching Luckenough, retired to bed and addressed herself to sleep. It was in vain. Her nerves were fearfully excited. In vain she tried to combat her terrors. They completely overmastered her. She was violently shocked out of a fitful doze. Old Jenny stood over her, lifting her up, shaking her and shouting in her ears, "'Miss Edith! Miss Edith! They're here! They are here! We shall be murdered in our beds!' In the room stood old Oliver, grey with terror, while all the dogs on the premises were barking madly, and a noisy party at the front was trying to force an entrance. Violent knocking and shaking at the outer door and the sound of voices. "'Open! Open! Let us in! For God's sake! Let us in!' "'Those are fugitives, not foes. Listen, they plead. They do not threaten.' "'Go and unbar the door, Oliver,' said Edith. Reluctantly and cautiously the old man obeyed. "'Light another candle, Jenny. That is dying in its socket. It will be out in a minute.' Trembling all over, Jenny essayed to do as she was bid, but only succeeded in putting out the expiring light. The sound of the unbarring of the door had deprived her of the last remnant of self-control. Edith struck a light while the sound of footsteps and voices in the hall warned her that several persons had entered. "'It's Nell and Liddy and Sol from Hay Hill. Oh, Miss Edith Dog and his men are up there, a story and everything. Oh, Miss Edie, and us thought it was so safe and out of the way up there. Oh, what escape, what escape we dem as had.'" End of chapter 1 Read by Goldfish